Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Did you know that you can find just about all of the Gangry the Podcast episodes, we've done 55 of them now, on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you'll find interviews with amazing writers and reporters like David Graham, Jeannie Marie Laskus, Tom Juneau, Chris Jones, Janet Reitman, Wright Thompson, Catherine Miles, Chuck Klosterman, Mac McClellan, Thomas Lake, and so many more. They are all there, along with links to many of the amazing stories and books written by our guests. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. On this episode, I talk with Christopher Gofford about his project, Dirty John, a combination print series and podcast. Candles flickered along the polished mahogany bar. Jazz drifted from speakers. Conversation purred. Deborah Newell had taken pains to look good. Her corn silk blonde hair fell in waves over her shoulders. Gofford is an author and staff writer for the Los Angeles Times. His series, Dirty John, focuses on the relationship between Deborah Newell and John Meehan. It was a relationship Deborah's children hated and one that ended in the death of one person. He is a... Uh... A veteran con man who spent time in jail and prisons, and he portrays himself as a doctor when he meets her. Gofford shared in the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for the Los Angeles Times investigation into the city of Bell, California. He has twice been a Pulitzer finalist for feature writing in 2007 and 2014. His book, You Will See Fire, A Search for Justice in Kenya, was based on his Los Angeles Times series and was published in 2011. He's also a successful fiction writer. His novel, Snitch Jacket, was a finalist for the Edgar Allan Poe Award for Best First Novel in 2008. As usual, we've linked to Dirty John and much more of Gofford's work on our website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast, Christopher. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to have you here uh, to talk about Dirty John. Um, I, I loved listening to the podcast. I, I also greatly enjoyed reading the story afterwards. Um, one thing I found, because I did listen to the podcast first and then read the story second, uh, I did find that as I read the story, I had your your voice in my head the entire time. <laughs> uh, All right. I don't know if other people have been that way or not, but um, uh, can we start things off? I'd love for you um, uh, to read the first four paragraphs of the print version of the story. Their first date was at Houston's, a restaurant in Irvine, where he opened the door for her and put her napkin on her lap. Candles flickered along the polished mahogany bar. 
Jazz drifted from speakers. Conversation purred. Deborah Newell had taken pains to look good. Her corn-silk blonde hair fell in waves over her shoulders. High black Gucci heels, designer jeans, Chanel bag. At 59, married and divorced four times, she had begun to worry that she was too old for another chance at love. Her four kids were grown. She ran a flourishing interior design firm, and she was looking for a man to share her success with. Her date was 55, six foot two with hard-jawed good looks and a gym-sculpted frame. He looked a little weathered, and he dressed lazily, shorts and an ill-matching preppy shirt, but he might have been an all-American quarterback on a trading card once. His name was John Meehan. He had thick, dark hair and a warm, friendly smile that invited trust. His eyes were hazel green, with the quality of canceling out the whole of the world that wasn't her, their current focus. So, um... Uh, I, I love that. I love that uh, lead um, to the story. Uh, it does a great job of really describing uh, who it is we're seeing uh, here in this at the start of the story. Can you can you start by talking a little bit, like briefly, like giving a synopsis of what uh, ultimately this series uh, is about? Yeah, this is about the relationship between uh, John Meehan and uh, Deborah Newell, and we establish them both here in this. Uh, in this opening, he is a, uh, a veteran con man who spent time in jail and prisons, and he portrays himself as a doctor when he meets her. He says he's just back from Iraq, where he's volunteer with Doctors Without Borders. He says he's an anesthesiologist. He has an explanation for why he has no car and he has no belongings. He has no clothes. He says the stuff was stolen while I was in Iraq. And uh, he seems to her a totally charming uh, and beguiling man who uh, uh, makes her fall in love with him. And they get married pretty quickly to the horror of her family. Um, they think she's marrying uh, with, uh, with too much haste. And this sets the stage for a six-part six part series that ran... Six parts in the LA Times and online, and uh, we had a six-part podcast that was released simultaneously. So I'm not sure if all of your listeners know how it ends, but I don't want to ruin the ruin the surprise for uh, for those who haven't. Right. We we won't get into yeah because uh, when I was I was I, I t- uh, was telling you before we actually started um, officially starting the podcast that. Um, I, I was showing this to my students uh, in, in one of my classes here at Fairfield University, uh, literally like maybe an hour ago. <laughs> um, okay. And I was trying to explain it, but then at the same time, um, I didn't want to um, give too much away um, because I think it is um, one of those stories that is incredibly interesting and um, you know it has a very important narrative engine that, that you want the reader to keep going to figure out and find out what ultimately happens. Right. And I I do want to say something, which is that uh, every fact in here is uh, carefully and meticulously reported, um, down to the kind of uh, wood on the uh, on the bar at this restaurant. I mean, I went to this bar and I asked the uh, the bartender, "Hey, what kind of wood is this?" on the bar and he said let me see and he goes and talks to the manager or the owner and he comes back and he says it's uh honduran mahogany 
And I said, thank you. I took a picture of it and I looked up Honduran mahogany and it matched. And this is, you know, a couple hours work for exactly one word in the, uh, in, in, in a story of 20,000 words. Um, but I thought that I needed a detail like that. A polished mahogany bar is a better description than a bar. It helps create the atmosphere in which these characters interact just a little bit more. Did you um, did you uh, start wondering what that bar was like before you started writing? Or was that something that you're, you sit down to start writing and then you're like, oh, they were at this bar. I need to know. Exa- you know do you know what I mean? Well, I'd been in there before. It's not far from uh, from where I live. So I'd, I'd been there. I had a general idea, but I thought that, uh, you know, there's a lot when you go into a restaurant you don't pay attention to unless you know you're going to have to describe it. And this is prime real estate in the story, your first graph. You really need to grab the reader uh, or you risk losing them. And so I needed just two or three details that would help set the scene um, and I noticed there were candles, uh, flickering along the bar. Uh, I noticed that there was, uh, music coming from the speakers. It was jazz. And I noticed the, uh, the way the conversation, uh, in the, in the bar, uh, filled the room. And so, uh, I felt like a couple details might just, might just set the scene in a, in a way that propels you into the story. Is there, but I mean, I'm always, I'm, I'm writing and reporting simultaneously. You know, it's not until I'm writing and I'm in the thick of it that I know what I might need. Mm-hmm, right. Is there a certain maybe reporter that maybe you've worked with, or maybe somebody who um, taught you um, that, that gave you kind of that desire to a know that those details matter and B know that, they really matter. They they really only matter if you get them exactly right. Oh, I mean, I've had I've had a few mentors. Most of them uh, I haven't met, though. Most of them I've learned from just because I study their work. Uh, but I suppose uh, I suppose the person I'm influenced by most that I actually uh, do know pretty well is uh, is Tom French. When I went to the St. Pete Times. He was a, a good part of the reason I wanted to go there, and um, he taught me a lot about how to report for uh, report for scene, building scenes, and the kind of details that you need. Yeah. Uh, angels and angels and demons. Uh, I'm sure your your students and your listeners are familiar with that series, but to me, that was uh, one of the most influential pieces of journalism in my career. It. it kind of put the key on the table for me yeah i was um i was lucky enough uh when i was a reporter at the columbus dispatch um to do the week-long narrative on deadline uh uh seminar pointer with with tom and uh i mean talk about something that just i mean to be around a reporter who who has done the type of work that he has done uh really i mean it it changes the way you approach your own work in a lot of ways oh for sure um in terms of uh sequencing Pacing, point of view, character, uh, withholding information to maximize suspense. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that can be learned from uh, from that series, which I read pretty much uh, 
a reread every time I do one of these myself because it's a it's a treasure trove of uh, of useful techniques. The uh, yeah, one of the things that I, that I was really um, fascinated by um, with with Dirty John, both the the the, the printed version and the podcast. Um, and this really kind of gets to story structure in a lot of ways, I think, is is how they both started differently. Um, right, uh, right. So the lead the lead in on the podcast is um, like, I mean, it couldn't be more different from the lead in that you just read. Um, can you can you can you talk about why you made uh, that decision? Like, when did it come about? Um, what the ultimate like lo- the the goal was ultimately in both of those leads? Well, we're getting into spoiler alert territory, but I suppose th- there's no way around it. Um, yeah, the uh, opening of the podcast is Matt Murphy, the prosecutor, and he's reading from uh, Meehan's uh, autopsy report, and he's reading the uh, stab wounds that he received, and there are 13 of them. Um, but you don't know it's Meehan's autopsy report. All you know is that somebody died in uh, in a very violent fashion. Mm-hmm. And so I tried various ways to make this work in print, and it just did not. And uh, I, I don't know why some things work in print and some things work in the podcast, but uh, I tried a lot of different mm-hmm. ways. The, 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 main, the main challenge that you have with this narrative is you have a very dramatic ending, and you need to figure out how much of it do I foreshadow, how much of it do I give away, do I withhold all information from the uh, the reader or the listener about uh, how grisly and uh, and unexpected this ending is going to be, or do you parcel out little clues? Do you create a uh, a mood of foreboding? These are all very very difficult choices, and none of it none of this writes itself. You know what I mean? Right. Right. <laughs> That's one of the that's one of the phrases that makes me crazy, and editors sometimes throw it at me because they know it riles me up. Uh, this one writes itself, Gofford, right? Which is right. never never the case in my experience. Um, so I, I'm curious, um, were, were there um, any other parts uh, within uh, the two? Um, I don't want to say dueling versions of the of the story, but. Um, were there any other parts where structurally you made changes between the print version and the podcast? Uh, I think pretty much the, I think pretty much the, uh, the podcast and the narrative version, uh, track pretty closely. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, the, the, the ending, they end on pretty much the same, the same beat. Uh, mm-hmm. Although, you know, the print version is not a word-for-word transcription. Uh, It's tightened in a lot of ways, and you don't have the luxury of the voices of the characters. People can't hear them, and in a lot of ways, I summarized what they said. And I limited the quotes, and, you know, one one interesting thing that I did was I wrote the podcast scripts, which are 50,000 words, first, and then in the little time I had remaining, which is probably two or three weeks, I wrote the uh, I wrote the print version because I had the basic uh, structure nailed and I knew what needed to go where. Mm-hmm. 
And so uh, I wrote I wrote the prose version very fast. Now, did you, um, because you were recently on um, the Sunday Long Read podcast, um, and you talked a little bit about the reporting. Um, did, did I hear right that you ended up going back and redoing a lot of the interviews once it was determined that there would be a podcast? Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely, because this was originally going to be uh, just a written story, as far as I knew, and I turned in a first draft. It was called Dirty John's Last Con, and the editor said, uh, let's make this a podcast. Go get everything on tape, and I had to learn from learn from scratch all of the things I needed to know. And they, they brought in uh, Wondery, the podcast network. They brought in uh, a producer, Karen Lowe, who has experience with, uh, with NPR and has some memorable This American Life segments. And she taught me a lot about how to capture audio and what kind of mic I needed, what kind of recorder I needed. Um, she taught me that I can use, uh, I can take my shoe off and put the mic in it as a stand. Um, I learned the difference between a condenser mic and a dynamic uh, mic and all these things that I had no idea about. Um, I was very, I was very interested in learning as much as possible as I, so I'm not dependent on anybody else to get what I need to go. I don't need to line anybody up if I need to do an interview at, you know, 10 PM on a Sunday night, somebody says, Hey, I'm ready to talk to you. I can grab my equipment and go. So from a reporting standpoint, um, what was that like to then uh, go back to Deborah and, and to go back to Deborah's children um, and then say, hey, can can I talk to you again? But this time I want to record it because we're we're going to even make this bigger than what I had initially thought of. Um, what was that like? What was their response like? Um, how did that go? They were. uh they were uh, receptive to that, uh, but there were complications because I was an ass. Uh, things went uh, things went sideways in a couple cases. For instance, the first time I interviewed Tara, we uh, we mic'd her up, and I had been talking. We've been talking for I guess about an hour, and she's getting to the most sensitive part of the story. Uh, the most traumatic part of the story where she's describing how she was attacked by Meehan and how she fought him off. And uh, her cat, which we she, she had put in uh, a bedroom, uh, decides right then to, uh, to lose its mind and start scratching at the door and meowing and making all kinds of noise. And this is the kind of thing that as a print journalist I would never worry about because you're writing down the quotes but I listened to the I listened to the audio and it was all through all through that extremely important portion of the uh, 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 of her account and so the producer said uh, look this leaves us in kind of a tight spot we can try uh, to get the sound engineer to minimize the cat sounds um, you know, you can say as the host, look, uh, the cat is going to be, uh, in the background during this portion of it, or you can go back and ask her to do it all again. Um, 
which is ultimately what I did. I explained the situation to Tara, and she was uh, she was receptive, and I I'm grateful that she was. Oh. So those are the things. Those are the things that you learn along the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the course of um, re-interviewing people, I, I'm curious. Um, obviously, because you obviously spent a lot of time with them. Um, without recording, at least for the podcast, uh, then to go back um, to spend more time with them. I'm assuming that um, what was there ever anything that that came out in the second round of interviews that maybe didn't come out in the first round that then helped really um, make the story better? Oh, always. But that's that's always the case in every story I do. I mean, you learn more in the third interview than you do in the in the first and you learn more in the fifth than you did in the third. Uh, these are not the kind of stories that you can do based on one interview. Right. I mean, I go back and I go back and I go back and every time I learn something new. What, um, what was the biggest challenge for you uh, in reporting, um, reporting the story, both, I guess, in round one um, and then in, in round two, although it might have been the cat <laughs> in round two, um, but just the biggest challenge in trying to find out the information you needed to really tell the story the way you told it. Well, time was a big challenge. You know, we did this all in three and a half months. We got word we were doing a podcast in mid June, I think, and we had to have uh, we had to have it released by October first. So that's what three and a half months, right. and uh, that was a, that was a major challenge. I mean, uh, there's no room. There's. <laughs> There's no room to take a vacation in the middle of that. I mean, I was I was all in. I was all in uh, every day for three and a half months. I wrote every word of it. I reported every word of it. And you've got documents from uh, from three states: from Michigan, from Ohio, from California. The public records are not that uh, friendly. The public records laws are not that friendly to reporters in California. Uh, which is uh, maddening for those of us who got our training in uh, Florida, the Sunshine State, with great sunshine laws where as soon as the... I mean, I covered courts there in Hillsborough County, and I remember as soon as the uh, prosecutors turned over their case, their discovery material to the defense, you could put in a request and you can get it. And there's nothing remotely like that here in California. And so... It's hard to get even police reports and names on police reports. Um, and so uh, you've got to find you've got to find people to give you stuff. So uh, I wanted to ask you, um, how did you find out about this story? And when you went and pitched it to your editor, what was the response? What was the initial thinking uh, or thoughts that this would be um, in the in the long run? Well, the person who broke this story is named Hannah Fry. She's a reporter for the Daily Pilot. And I worked for that newspaper, uh, man, 20 years ago, 96, 97, I think it was, just before I went to the St. Petersburg Times. And uh, a few months later, I was talking with Matt Murphy, who is the uh, prosecutor here at the very beginning. And he said, look, we've looked into this case. We're not going to file charges. And that means a lot of material is going to be coming open, like the uh, the autopsy report. Um, 
So I got the autopsy report, uh, started talking to people, and I don't, I don't think uh, it it was clear to anybody exactly how many layers to this uh, there would be until way down the line. I mean, I didn't even realize myself how many layers of psychological complexity there were to this story. Mm-hmm. Deborah's background and why she makes the decision she does and how her uh, her upbringing might have influenced it, uh, the shooting of her her sister uh, in 1984, all of these all of these things that I think shed light on the central drama of the story. I I don't think I don't think anybody really understood the um, significance of them at the beginning. Right. Um, you you brought up Deborah and and her background and and one thing I found as, as I was listening, um, and also reading, um, I I constantly found myself like thinking in my head why why Deborah why um why are you making the decisions you're making, um and 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 I, and I think a lot of ways I I kind of really like connected in terms of, um personally with Deborah's daughters and and what they must have felt like as they were going through this. Um, how did you feel as you were reporting it, uh, and, and and talking with Deborah and and how did you go about doing that and keeping that open mind? So the, so you could then find those kind of, um, things in the background that in a lot of ways help shape who she is. Well, so my approach is basically not to judge and not to apologize. So I don't go into it as a prosecuting attorney and I don't go into it as uh, the defense attorney where I'm looking to either scold people for their choices or uh, make excuses for them and whitewash them. Um, I'm looking to understand that's my job. And I think uh, because people sense that, they uh, they open up and they, they, they talk about the decisions they made. and. Um, tried very hard to understand uh, why people made the choices they did in this, you know, in this series. And I remember telling Deborah in, uh, I guess it's part four, forgiveness, when she takes them back, look, this is the the hardest part to explain to people. A lot of people just aren't going to get this. Why, in the face of all this evidence, you decided to take this guy back? And um, the best you can do is try and put yourself uh, in her mindset at the moment mm-hmm. and to, uh, to recognize there are, there are some universal, um, there are some universal qualities to this story. We all, I mean, we're not androids. We, uh, we're driven by, uh, longings that we don't fully understand and not all of our decisions are, are, uh, are rational. Um, you know, life is hard and, Loneliness is hard, and we don't always make the best choices, but uh, I never went into it with the idea that I was going to judge her for her choices. You know, some people on social media, uh, they took some shots at her, mm-hmm. and uh, this upset me, and I wish in retrospect that I had put in more stuff about the dynamic of domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. And details about how, for instance, you know, uh, a woman will leave on average six times before she leaves for good in a in an abusive relationship. Things that 
might shed a little more light on what was going on there. Right. Um, there's a there's a, a paragraph uh, uh, in the first part, uh, the the first the first chapter. Um, and I'd like to read it and, and then and get, get your thoughts on on that uh, that paragraph that you wrote. Um, it's uh, her perfect rooms were like the face you presented on dates, inviting people to fantasize about the peace that may complete their lives. If your eagerness or loneliness or desperation showed too soon, you were done. Maybe that had been John's mistake. Uh, and, and that paragraph is coming after, basically after the first date, right? When John uh, came off as, as very um, pushy and she literally kicked him out of, out of, out of her house. Um, can, can you talk about that paragraph? And, and, and I, I kind of wonder if you're also foreshadowing um, some of Deborah's own mistakes as well. What, what are your thoughts? Well, that comes uh, after she takes me on the tour of her uh, of her warehouse, right? Which is actually my favorite my favorite moment in the podcast is in part one. There, she's taking me through the through uh, her warehouse and she's showing me all these um, uh, all these things she uses to decorate uh, the model homes that she builds, mm-hmm. and uh, we come to a row of bookshelves. And there are these hardback books arranged by color. There's blue and then aqua and brown and all these variations of, uh, of colors. And she gets them at yard sales, she explains to me, uh, on weekends. And she uses them to furnish these houses that she builds in these uh, these model homes. And, well, she doesn't build the houses. She, she designs these, uh, these living rooms for home builders so that people see what kind of home they want to live in. And uh, I said, so are there any rules surrounding the kind of books you can put in these living rooms? And she says, uh, the only thing that I can't use are books with the words sex and death in the title. Um, And the reason I like that is it's very seldom that you get uh, one of your main characters in a story to kind of state the themes um, without really knowing it. And those are, those are key to understanding the entire story. And also the sense of, um, facades concealing a darker reality, you know, denial and self-deception are uh, important elements in the story. Um, she says she creates uh, approachable dreams, which is what these uh, the, the trappings in this warehouse are all about. Mm-hmm. John Meehan, in a in a much more sinister way, is creating his own domestic fantasies for people to uh, to latch on to. Um, and so, I just think that moment says an awful lot. I think it's neat when when you can stumble across a surprise like that and you find it thematically fits what you're working on. Right. Right. Uh, it should be noted that Deborah is incredibly successful businesswoman, correct? Yes. And, and, and in a lot of ways that also kind of adds to her, her character development. Um, you know, somebody who is so incredibly successful in one, in, in, in a professional realm, but has had failures uh, in the personal realm. And I, I, you seem to have done a really good job of kind of um, showing those two sides of her. 
Uh, yeah, she's a complicated person. Um, what did the family, uh, Deborah um, and her daughters, uh, what were their thoughts on the story once it came out? Have you, have you talked with them? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, two of her kids never talked to me, um, but Tara did and uh, Jacqueline did, and uh, they both were complimentary about the story. And uh, uh, Tara, I think, is very happy that her her story is uh, is finally out there in a way that makes clear what happened. I mean, people were coming up to her and saying, hey, I hear you killed a guy. Right, right. They didn't know anything about it, and so this makes it clear exactly what led to it. And I think Deborah has a... You know, I think I think she wanted to uh, she wanted to help people with her story. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm getting emails from people who say, you know, this is an important story. It illustrates a uh, certain subset of uh, domestic abuse, and um, it could save some people. It could teach them to recognize the signs. I think that's one thing that I really like about the story, and, and as 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 perplexed as I was, as, as I read and listened to it with with regard to Deborah's decisions, the fact remains that she she's a smart woman who is making these decisions, and so to try to understand how it is that 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 people make decisions that on the surface seem completely weird, and, and they happen, um, and. Uh, and, and, and that can go a long way in, in helping other people who, who read it and may be feeling like they're living a, a, a similar life. Yeah, if it, makes, if it makes a few people feel less alone in their experience or more able to understand what they've gone through or are going through, then I think it's done some good. So we'll kind of uh, step back a, a little bit from the story. I'd love to talk just, you know, not, not too long, but about your, your career as a reporter. And, and I don't know why I didn't realize this until um, uh, I listened to the, the Long Read podcast that, when you were a guest. And, and that's the fact that you, you were, and you mentioned this earlier, that you worked at the St. Petersburg Times, uh, now the Tampa Bay Times. Um, when were you there and, and what was that like? Oh, well, I came there from the Daily Pilot, which was uh, this, you know, my background is in community uh, newspapering. I was at the Daily Pilot, which is in Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, uh, for about a year and a half, two years in the uh, 90s, um, where, I, you know, in any given week, I would cover or be expected to cover, you know, a city council meeting, um, a murder, uh Missing school ground equipment, uh, a missing puppy, <laughs> a sea lion taking over a boat. There were all kinds of things that I had to be trained to do, and it was it was great experience. I mean, you're exhausted by the time Friday rolls around, and I don't think you can sustain that pace for many years. Uh, but it was good. It was good training. I was in my twenties and had the energy for it, and you learn. You learn to write real fast. You learn to write on deadline. And if you're if you're a basically shy person like I am, you learn real quick to get over your apprehension about approaching strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I packed all of my stuff into my uh, little green Toyota Tercel 
gave away or threw away everything that didn't fit and drove across the country to the St. Petersburg Times, where I got my start at the uh, Pasco County Bureau in uh, a place called uh, Port Ritchie. And I was the cop reporter there under uh, a great, great editor named Mike Moscardini. And uh, Joe Becker was in the newsroom at the time. Kent Fisher, I remember a lot of really good reporters came through there. I think T. Christian Miller came through there. Um, Jeffrey Gettleman was in what's called the North Suncoast uh, uh, area, which is Pasco, Hernando, and Citrus. And after a while, I worked my way down to the Tampa Bureau, where I covered city council. And then courts in Tampa. And finally, at the very end, I made my way to where I'd always wanted to be, which is the Floridian section, which was feature writing. Um, I did a series uh, with Tom French uh, and Jamie Thompson called The the Long Road, which was the Jennifer Porter case, (coughs) which people who live in that area would remember. Mm -hmm. It's basically a school teacher. Who uh, who hit some kids coming uh, leaving school and uh, didn't stop, and it was all the uh, the cases that unfolded, um, and the racial dynamics at play. And uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot in that in that experience. And then I went to Floridian, and the last man they had a really they had a really really great editors there. There was an editor named Richard Bachman who was fantastic. Mike Wilson was fantastic. Uh, he was my he was my editor along with uh, John Perry on a series I did there called uh, the Forty Dollar Lawyer, which mm-hmm. was basically a year in the life of a rookie public defender in Hillsborough County. I followed a guy named Charlie Demostenos who had wanted to be a prosecutor because he thought that's what the successful uh, lawyers did, but he couldn't get a job there. So he went to the public defender's office and he was kind of a uh, last chance hire. He hadn't done well in law school. His prospects didn't look good. His dad wanted him to work at uh, Santa's Club or Home Depot. Um, but as I followed him over the course of a year, he really came into his own as an attorney and discovered a sense of meaning fighting for the underdog. And I think it ran in three parts, and it's it remains one of my uh, my favorite stories ever. Yeah, the um, uh, the Tampa Bay Times, St. Petersburg Times, um, well, the Tampa Bay Times now officially, um, is I think without a doubt the best newspaper in the country for when it comes to developing good uh, reporters who are amazing, who are able to tell stories uh, with uh, the reporting that they've done. Um, and I think it's now the gang, it's got to be the, the gangry podcast record holder for most newspaper reporters who've been on the show because I've had um, Ben Montgomery and Michael Cruz and Lane Gregory and Mike Wilson was on the show and John Woodrow Cox. And um, there's just constantly amazing stuff coming out of there. So. Oh, and Tom Lake. Tom Lake, that's Tom right. Lake Tom Lake, a great was, writer, yeah. was there. He had the job that I left, you know, uh, in in Pasco <coughs> as a as a cop reporter, I believe. Right, and he wrote um, he wrote a story, and I, and maybe you're aware of it or not, but it was a story about the woman who um, fell behind the bookshelf um, 
and died within her own home and her parents couldn't find her. Um, and they want, they thought she had been kidnapped. Oh man, I haven't read that story. You got to send me, you got to send me the link to that. one. I, I will. It's, um, and I can't think of the headline. Um, but the thing that strikes me is, you know, over the course of about five years, this, they, that, that newspaper had two stories about, um, people dying in their own homes and nobody knowing where they were. Uh, cause Michael Cruz had, had his piece. As oh well. yeah. He had that fantastic story. It was, it was relatively short, but that story is uh, is one I go to over and over. There's a lot of just great stuff that, that, that's come out of there. And, you know, Ann Hall was there. Mm-hmm. She did a series called Metal to Bone, which was incredible. Um, and later did great stuff at the Washington Post. Uh, it, it's just a great place to, uh, great place to learn. And I was working you know, at a, at a very intense clip at the Pasco County, mm-hmm. Pasco County newsroom and later in Tampa. I mean, the, the, the workload never really let up. <clears throat> right. Right. Um, so, so for you right now, um, what are you looking for when you're looking for, for story, like bigger stories to work on? Is there a certain thing that, that you are particular, particularly interested in or what are you looking for when you're looking for something to take on? Oh, that's a that's a tough question because I don't really know until I see it whether uh, it's going to it's going to uh, excite me. Um, it it helps if you have uh, people in a in a dramatic situation if there are stakes, um, if there are people who are capable of uh, talking about their experience and reflecting on it. Um, you know the story I did. Uh, before Dirty John was called Framed, and it was about a uh, a PTA mom in a city called Irvine in California who was framed by two attorneys who lived down the block um, who conspired to plant uh, drugs in her car. Mm -hmm. Um, I did six parts on that, and the stakes, you could argue, were relatively low because... Before that, I'd spent a year following Syrian refugees uh, around the world, and they, you know, who'd experienced unbelievable, unbelievable horror. Um, and here, here the stakes are: a woman may lose her lose her job and go to jail and get a criminal conviction for uh, for drugs planted or in a car, but. If you look at the story from the point of view of the PTA mom, whose name is Kelly Peters, this is a potentially shattering experience. This is uh, this is the life she's built for herself. Her reputation is important to her. She's given up a lot so that she can be volunteer at the school. And I think if you can, I think if you can uh, vest people in the character's point of view then the stakes become enormous. So that was a story that I decided to pursue after a conversation with uh, an editor here, longer here, called uh, Mark Duvasson, who said, uh, this is is a story everybody wants to read about. Um, I said, really? It's been covered many times, and... uh, you know, no one was killed. There wasn't a murder. Uh, he said, "No, no, this is uh, this is going to be fascinating to people because 
look at the figure of uh, Kent Easter, who was this high-powered lawyer um, who was implicated in this uh, in this drug planting plot. He had something like a four hundred thousand dollar a year job at one of the top firms in Orange County, and yet he uh, he decided to go along with this uh, with this scheme. And you know, we all we all worry about whatever success we have in life uh, being evanescent. We all worry about the trap door opening up beneath us. And here's a guy who took certain steps um, that uh, the outside seem extremely irrational um, that helped uh, throw open that trap door on himself. So that was a conversation I had with Duvasan about this at the beginning, and uh, it turned out to be a good call because uh, I think the series turned out well and it got a lot of response. Uh, will you will you do another podcast story again? Oh yeah, I hope to. Yeah, I mean a lot has to go right for a podcast to work, mm-hmm. but if we can get the right idea and if we can get the access, uh, then for sure. I mean, I still consider myself an amateur at it. Right. Um, I've got three and a half months experience <laughs> in podcasting, basically. Um, well, Christopher Gofford, uh, thank you so much for joining Ganger the Podcast. It's been great talking with you. Thanks for having me. I've been talking with Christopher Gofford about his print and podcast series, Dirty John. Gofford is an author and staff writer for the Los Angeles Times. We've linked to a lot of his work on our website. That's at www.gangritapodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Just go there and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangri the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Technical help, as always, is offered by John Scrata and Steve Cease. Noel Crouchley is a student assistant. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.